Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and today I'm speaking with Eric Sherman about his new book, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania and the Remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers from the University of Nebraska Press. Daybreak at Chavez Ravine tells the story of Fernando Valenzuela, a legendary pitcher who transformed baseball forever in 1981. Valenzuela stands alongside the other heroes of sport, like Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson. Both biography and a cultural history of the Mexican-born phenom, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine is a must-read for any baseball fan or for those interested in Latinx history. Eric, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Well, thank you very much for having me, Caleb. Of course, you know, as I said, uh, you know, this is you know really, really a, a book that anyone who's a, who's a baseball fan interested in baseball history, it's uh, it's impossible to talk uh, about baseball history. Uh, without talking about Fernando Valenzuela, but before you know, talking about him and and talking about a little bit about the Dodgers, I was wondering if you could just uh, get into a little bit about your background uh, and and a little bit about yourself. Well, going way back, I've been a professional writer since I was fourteen years old. Um, went to Emerson College, and a professor once said to me, "There's nothing older than yesterday's newspaper, but books last forever." And so that that helped inspire me to become an author. And Daybreak at Chavez Ravine is my eighth book and uh, one that I'm really proud of. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about uh, some of the other topics that you've written about? Yeah, they're, they're all baseball books, but they're all baseball books that transcend the sport. Uh, there's a human interest element to all of them uh, about how these players and teams that I write about, how they deal with and overcome or not overcome challenges both on the baseball field and off. So before before getting into this book and talking about Fernando uh, and, and his uh, his debut in 1980, I think it's best to to go back 25 years, 30 years before and talk a little bit about the Dodgers. So why did the Dodgers, such a historic New York franchise, decide to move to Los Angeles? Because Robert Moses, the city planner of New York, wouldn't give them a new ballpark uh, nor could they really do anything with Ebbets Field. Ebbets Field, where they played at in Brooklyn, was a beloved ballpark. In fact, the Mets of today, um, when they built City Field, uh, it, it, it was really inspired by Ebbets Field. If you look at it, it has the same shape, and and you go inside, it you know similar dimensions, and um, of course, there's it, it seats about fifteen thousand more fans. But uh, Ebbets Field was just so small um, by 1950 standards. You know, you had Yankee Stadium that at the time you could fit over 70,000 there. You had Cleveland's Municipal Stadium, which I think sat 80,000. So it was really a, a situation where the Dodgers couldn't compete from an attendance standpoint. Uh, they certainly had great teams right up until they left Brooklyn um, to move to Los Angeles. Uh, in fact, they won the World Series in 1955 
and they were packing their bags two years later uh, to go to Los Angeles. So they were a very good team in the 50s. But uh, as far as attendance, they just couldn't match up with some of the other teams in baseball. And um, and they started looking for a new home. They couldn't get one in New York. And the city of Los Angeles um, had 300 acres of property at Chavez Ravine that they had nothing to do with. Um, they had originally, um, the, the residents of Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles, which was comprised almost entirely of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, uh, were forced to sell their homes through eminent domain to make way for affordable housing. Uh, this was supposed to be this utopian project uh, in the early 50s um, that was really going to help the city um, house people affordably. The Red Scare comes along in 1952, 1953, and all of a sudden affordable housing is deemed as being at best socialist and at worst communist. Um, so this, the plan was scrapped and, um, and hence the city was stuck with all this land and, um, and they seduced the Dodgers, uh, to, to buy it. And, you know, which is what happened. And a few years later, Dodger stadium was built on that land. So I think the standard narrative out there is that the Dodgers were responsible for the displacement at Chavez Ravine, but, but you could say that that's pretty, pretty unequivocally not true that it was the Dodgers came after. There wasn't plans for a stadium there, was there? The original sin was by the city uh, and their and their plans um, for affordable housing. Um, so, you know, part, part of that sin was paying the residents of Chavez Ravine um, 50 cents, 60 cents on the dollar for what their homes were actually worth. Now, these were not, you know, this was not an upscale neighborhood. I mean, there were some residents that grew all the food that they ate. Um, but it was a vibrant neighborhood. In fact, there were three neighborhoods and it was vibrant and it was a happy area. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, the one, there were ones, well, they were all asked to take what the city would give them. Now, what happened was, and this is, where the controversy comes in with the Dodgers. Um, some of those residents refused to take less than what their homes were worth. These were two and three generations of Mexican-American families that had lived on this property for quite some time, and they weren't going to move unless a fair deal was made. So they're getting ready to build Dodger Stadium to break ground, and these remaining families some of them were dragged, forcibly removed from their homes and handcuffed and then watched as their homes were bulldozed to the ground. Now, that is a terrible visual for the Dodgers. And, you know, when I researched all, all this, I couldn't understand. It, it wasn't the O'Malley's responsibility. It was the city's to make right by these people. But for all the trouble that it caused why Walter O'Malley didn't just write a check and make it right. I will never understand that. He didn't have to, but boy, it would have solved it. It would have, um, it would have solved a lot of problems. Um, but that wasn't done. 
And quite honestly, uh, for 20 years um, after Dodger Stadium was built, um, Mexican-Americans and Latinos did not go to Dodger games. Um, I interviewed uh, Lyle Spencer, a marvelous sports writer in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, worked in L.A. and New York, and then back out west. And um, and he would tell me that in the 1970s, before Fernando arrived, maybe 5% of the crowd at Dodger Stadium was Latino. Uh, then by his own study, um, maybe 10% were African-American, and then the other 85% uh, were white. It was a really white crowd. But all that changed in 1981 with Fernando Mania. And then Mexican-Americans, they came out in droves when on days that he pitched. Attendance was up 15,000, uh, not just at Dodger Stadium, but when they would visit other cities around the country. So Fernando Mania was an organic phenomenon that started almost immediately in 1981 and really um, has lasted the test of time. You know, you go to Dodger Stadium now and you will see just as many Fernando number 34 jerseys as you will Mookie Betts or Freddie Freeman or Oral Hershiser, uh, truly. Um, so um, it's a phenomenon that has lasted now for more than four decades. Yeah. Even if you go to other stadiums, like I, you know, I, I'm in New York, I go to Yankee games and to City Field Mets games all the time. And I think of I think you see Val, Fernando Valenzuela jerseys more. Maybe maybe the person that comes up next to it is Jackie Robinson as far as non-active players. But you you definitely see Fernando Valenzuela jerseys um, at at every single baseball game you go to. Now you know when he, he he's he was born at around the same time that the Dodgers um, moved to to yeah. Los Angeles. Uh, what what was his his childhood like? Uh, you know when when did it become clear to those around that he was something special? Well, he was born into poverty, um, the state of Sonora in Mexico. Um, okay, I'm going to try to say the name of the town, Echehuaquia. Um, I hope I didn't butcher that too much, but 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 that's where he was from. And literally, I mean, he he learned his craft on a on a baseball field um, you know, without bleachers, not even a backstop. Um, but he, he quit school after eighth grade and started playing professionally, uh, down in Mexico on these club teams where they would get paid. And, um, so at, at 14 years old, he was playing with grown men. And so, you know, there was buzz about him, but the scouting reports, weren't exactly uh, glowing, you know, even when the Dodgers signed him and the Dodgers signed him for what at the time was a significant amount of money. The report given by Mike Brito uh, back to the Dodgers was, you know, that, you know, he had a good fastball and an off-speed pitch, but he, he didn't have that third pitch. Um, and so, Al Campanis, who was the GM at the time, said to Mike Brito, why the heck did we sign this guy? He didn't say it so gently. Um, and so he said to Brito, look, you've, you've, you've got to get Valenzuela to throw a third pitch. 
And so he got together with uh, with Bobby Castillo, uh, who was a pitcher with the Dodgers, also Mexican. He was, he was Mexican-American, actually. And and Bobby threw the screwball. And the screwball, uh, it's, so for your listeners, a screwball, which is hardly ever thrown now, it, it's like a backwards curveball. And so Bobby taught Fernando to throw this pitch. And very few in the history of the game have mastered it. I guess Carl Hubble was the first one that really did. And he ended up going into the Hall of Fame because of it. Um, but anyway, um, he, uh, Fernando mastered the screwball and just bedeviled hitters when he came up. Um, 8-0, greatest start for a starting pitcher in the history of the game. 0.50 ERA um in you know while going 8 and 0 um cover boy of sports illustrated after 7 weeks as a starting pitcher um the following week i think it was he's at the white house at a at, at a luncheon with president reagan and the mexican president portillo and no one's asking for reagan's autograph for portillo's autograph for Bush Sr.'s autograph, the vice president, they're lining up asking for Fernando's autograph. I mean, that to me is stunning because here he was a starting pitcher, 20 years old, seven weeks as a starting pitcher, and he has this type of celebrity status. Now, he did come up the year before that September, and he tossed 17 shutout innings, um, but he was still in the baseball witness protection program because a lot of those innings were mop-up duty. Um, you know, I don't think he closed out any any of the games, maybe one or two. But I, I don't know if he even had a save, you know. He was really kept under the radar. And um, interesting story. Um, the previous year, the Dodgers and Astros were tied after 162 games. And so they had a one-game playoff. And... The, and, and all the Dodger players wanted Tommy Lasorda to have Valenzuela pitch this one-game playoff. Uh, but they ended up going with, um, um, the name escapes me, but it was a big free agent signing that year. Um, it didn't have a particularly great year. Um, however, he was the big free agent signing and... No one, you know, no manager is going to get fired for making that decision. So they went with him instead of Fernando. And of course, the Dodgers, they get that big, big deficit early. And then when they finally bring in Fernando for a couple of innings, he throws two innings of shutout ball. So, um, you know, I, I think it may have been a blessing in disguise in a sense, because the rest of baseball didn't know who Fernando was, but Boy, in the 81 season, he hit the league like a firebolt. Prior to him coming in, I think like there there was obviously obviously the, the legendary introduction in 1947 of Jackie Robinson to the MLB, uh, breaking the color barrier. Um, and just that that sort of period of of, of slow racial integration. Uh well, you know, what was the general state of of uh, of race relations in the league uh, prior to Fernando? joining what was it uh you, you know what were things um you know how, how different were things since since jackie had had uh had first played well i think they had certainly improved you know um 
uh, I guess the Red Sox were the last team to integrate with Pumpsy Green in 1959. Um, the Yankees weren't too far before them. Well, actually, they were in 1955 with Elston Howard. I think it was 55. And uh, But the National League, for whatever reason, was so far ahead of the American League in integration. And let's face it, as, as a result, um, aside from the World Series, they were the dominant league. Um, they dominated the All-Star game. And they had the vast majority of the black superstars. And, but by 1980, 81, when Fernando came along, uh, race relations were much, much more improved. In fact, um, I know by 1973, 28% of the major leagues was African-American. Um, so things, they moved along quickly. Uh, with Mexican-Americans and Mexican players, it didn't move along quite as quickly. And I think one of the reasons was the teams just weren't scouting in Mexico like they should have been. Uh, there were some really terrific players and leagues down in Mexico, uh, but the major leagues, for whatever reason, they weren't harvesting uh, Mexico or Latin America probably as hard as they should have. Right. And obviously, you know, today so much of the league is Latin American. So it's so, you know, it's wild to think that that only 40, I don't even, you know, j- just over 40 years ago, uh, 42 years ago, was it's really not that long, that, that long of a time. So, you know, you, you mentioned that Fernando, you know, he rocketed off to this incredible start uh, in the 1981 season, but that was also a really uh, fraught season too. So, you know, while Fernando is also having a great season what's going on at the bigger picture stage of during of of the league well labor strife um so you know what the owners what they wanted to do was take take away some of the the rights the players had worked so hard for um at the at at the on at the outset of free agency which really began in 1976 um, you did have Dave, Dave McNally, um, and you had Andy Messersmith really test free agency. Um, the year or two before that, they played an entire season without a contract. And then after 74, well, Catfish Hunter, uh, was mailed his contract a day or two late and he automatically became a free agent. The Yankees signed. I mean, it just changed baseball completely. The owners were very, very concerned that free agency was going to be the ruination of the game because, you know, they weren't going to be able to afford uh, to pay these high salaries. Um, and what they didn't realize was the player movement was very good for the game in creating interest. Um, so while the salaries went up, Attendance went up, ticket prices went up, TV revenues would follow, and now owning a Major League Baseball team, you can't lose. It just keeps appreciating every year, no matter what they do to try to destroy the game. Um, But anyway, um, so there was labor strife. Um, The major issue at that time in 81 was compensation the owners would get if they lost a free agent. And 
So um, the owners had a certain number of days of insurance. And as soon as I think it was seven weeks with Lloyd's of London. And once that ran out, they got to the bar- bargaining table and and the strike was over pretty quickly. But for but that strike was very damaging to the game. And it took a seven-week bite out of, out of the season. Now, for Fernando, it can be argued that with all the innings that Lasorda was pitching, this young 20-year-old who threw a very taxing screwball, it probably uh, invigorated him. It probably saved him for the rest of the season and through the playoffs and through the World Series. So uh, for Fernando, it was probably a good thing. You mentioned uh, Lasorda, the Dodgers manager at the time. Uh, I would love if you could share a little bit about Tommy Lasorda because he's a he's a fascinating character in his own right, and then also just about his relationship with Fernando. Well, there were a few people in Fernando's life that were actually absolutely godsends for him at that time. So Fernando was an extremely shy individual, and. His English was not very good, um, and he tried to learn English when he was 17 or 18, um, but he he was just, you know, he, he would have teammates that would, you know, trick him, and, and, you know, they would whisper things in his ear when he was in English as a second language class, and, and he would embarrass easily, and um, so... He had guys like Tommy Lasorda that would um, that would speak on his behalf. Uh, he had Jaime Harin, who was his interpreter. So Tommy Lasorda was 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 definitely one of those people in Fernando's life that really helped him because uh, Tommy never saw a camera that he didn't love. Uh, he was very much a part of the Hollywood establishment. Um, he. Um, you know, he would wear a sombrero around Fernando and and he would pretend, you know, the Spanish that he knew. He would take what Fernando was saying and he would tell a reporter, yeah, I'll tell you what Fernando said. He he, he said he is the greatest manager in baseball and he, he wouldn't know what to do without me. You know, he was, um, Lasorda was P.T. Barnum. He was the P.T. Barnum of baseball. And... Um, and so Fernando needed people like that. He needed people like Jaime Harin that would interpret for him at press conferences. He needed Mike Brito, his, you know, the scout that signed him and that would speak so well on his behalf. Um, uh, he, he had these people in his life that really helped him uh, because his shyness was very, very real. Um, and there was nothing that he liked doing less than talking to the press. And in fact, that's pretty much the case today. Um, he, he doesn't like to draw attention to himself. So so in the wake of the, the strike and then the return to baseball, uh, you know, the Dodgers ha- have a great season. What was their, what was the, that World Series like? Well, the World Series was against the Yankees. So, you know, it was the third time that the two teams were playing each other in five years. Um, in 77, you know, Reggie Jackson had the big night in game game six, hitting the three home runs. And, you know, the, I interviewed a lot of the Dodgers from that era for this book. And to a man, they thought the 77 Dodgers 
were were better all around than the Yankees. Um, so that was a great disappointment. Um, you know, I mean, that 77 team ended the Reds mini dynasty that they had, you know, the, yeah. the Reds were so dominant in 75 and 76 and they had won other pennants in 72 and 70. That Dodger team was really good. And then you had the 78 Dodger team that was very talented as well. And the Yankees again took them in six games. Um, so they really wanted to beat the Yankees. You know, I mean, the, throughout the Yankee Dodger lore, going back to the 1940s, uh, the Yankees had dominated the Dodgers and the Dodgers wanted this one really bad. They knew that this was their last hurrah with the core guys that they had. You know, they had the longest running infield in the history of baseball um, for eight and a half seasons. Uh, Garvey, Lopes, uh, Bill Russell, and Ron Say uh, made up that infield. And this was it. And, you know, Dusty Baker uh, was near the end uh, of his tenure with the Dodgers. Rick Monday was at the end. So they wanted to do it now. And so they dropped the first two games at Yankee Stadium. And now it's game three. And it's Fernando, this 20-year-old, again, they turn to to save their season. And ironically enough, Fernando did not have it. Um, he did not have his good stuff in game three of the of the 81 World Series, but neither did Dave Rigetti, you know, the great rookie pitcher from the from the Yankees. Um, but what Fernando was able to do was to wiggle in and out of trouble and ended up pitching a complete game, 147 pitches, and and it was just his his moxie, his um his determinedness that that really saved the season for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers would go on to win the next three and their first World Series championship um since what was it, nineteen sixty five, I think it was, before that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And- and just for listeners, throwing 147 pitches in a game, that would literally never happen today. I don't think a pitcher would get past 125 unless they were on pace for a, for a perfect game. It, right. it, they would never allow, allow it. And even in that case, they would still probably pull them. Um, but, it, you know, th- this is a, a question that I have to ask just because, you know, I think with baseball, you know, I, I uh, it was pro- learning baseball history was some of the first history that I learned as a young as a young kid, uh, and you know I, I was raised a, a Mets fan. Uh, my dad, in particular, his favorite player of all time was Tom Seaver, and he always claimed that Seaver was robbed of the Cy Young in <laughs> 1981. So I, I, you know, I would love I would love to hear your take on that claim. Obviously, there's lots of good arguments as to why Valenzuela deserved it too, of course. Uh, but do you have any any thoughts on the on that point? Yeah, well, um, Seaver had a lower ERA. Uh, I think he won one more game. Um, I know Valenzuela was thirteen and seven. I think Seaver was fourteen and two. Um, and like I said, he had a lower ERA. So you know, I'm 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 almost sure he was fourteen and two. So let's go with that. So it's fourteen and two versus thirteen and seven. So that one's in Seaver's column. Uh, The ERA, uh, Fernando's, I think, was 2.76. And um, 
Seavers was like 2.4 something, I believe. So he had them on that. However, um, for what the impact that Fernando had on the game of baseball, uh, not just for baseball, but socially as well, and the phenomenon what he was, and the first half of the season, he was ungodly good. Um, I think um, the Riders made the right decision with Val Valenzuela. Um, I think any other season against any other pitcher, Seaver would have gotten, um, but not that time. Um, Valenzuela, what he meant to the game, it, it was it was very much the same effect, but even greater than what we saw from a pitcher named Mark the Bird Fidrich in 1976. Um, you know, Fidrich was a guy that burst onto the scene, came out of nowhere like Valenzuela. And during another really unpopular time in baseball, I mean, that was when players again were thought of as being super greedy and, you know, with the advent of free agency and, and this kid, Mark the Bird Fidrich with his big curly hair, uh, you know, he acts like Big Bird out on the mound and, uh, it's just got this big smile and, um, and, um, and he won the Cy Young Award that year. I'm almost sure of it in 76. Um, might've been Jim Palmer, but, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Mark Vidrich, but anyway, it was that same type of dynamic. So sometimes you have to look past the numbers and I think that's what the writers did, but that was a very close vote with Seaver. I, I think it was decided. I was just looking at that the other day. I, th I think it was decided by one second place vote or something like that. Right, and and obviously still, you know, even in the, the today we're in a in a saber metric heavy era too, where you know even pitchers with the best ERH still don't necessarily win the Cy Young uh, because obviously innings pitched and strikeouts. There's there's so many factors. I, I think, yeah, that those that was always something. That was how I learned about Fernando. Was yeah. that oh, oh, Fernando, the guy that stole the side hung from? Uh, oh, well, <laughs> from I'll, I'll, I'll say one more thing in Fernando's defense, and and I and I was a big Seaver guy. You know, I I grew up in New Jersey, and and you know, I rooted for the Mets and the Yankees, which is kind of weird, but I did. My father was a Yankee fan. My brother, my older brother, was a Mets fan. And I started watching baseball in 73 when the Mets went to the World Series. And um, but and and I knew Tom Seaver, you know, I I did the last major interview of Tom Seaver's life with him uh for my book After the Miracle on the 69 Mets with Hart Shamsky. And um uh, well, what was my point? Um, you know, just you know, about Seaver's uh, you know, that's <laughs> About you know, well, Seaver obviously has had one of the most storied careers ever. He won countless awards, so you he know, did. to 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 uh, you know, to be upset that he didn't get his uh, his accolades is is maybe too much. But you know, <laughs> when you're a fanboy, especially with baseball, it's hard to uh, to separate the emotions from uh, <laughs> from other things. You know, you know, obviously Fernando's his first season is is the the stuff of legends. I don't think that. In baseball, at least, there has been a player, maybe, I don't know, Ken Griffey Jr. or something, but, you know, I, I don't think that there's been a player that young that has exploded onto the scene in that way. Um, you know, obviously, he, he had, a, he had a, a, a decently long, long career. 
Uh, what was the rest of his career like, and how over that that span of time did he transform the Dodger fan base? Well, I'm going to answer that question while going back to what I forgot. I can tie them together. Yeah, go for it. So, yeah. in Fernando's defense, in '81, um, you know, because of the strike, the Dodgers were awarded the they were in first place at the end of when the strike hit, and they were awarded a spot in the playoffs, no matter what they did in that second season. It was a split season. Um, so <laughs> when play resumed in, I think it was early August, they they were, they were had two months to play out the season. Um, however, Fernando was great box office. And um, so the Dodgers and Lasorda uh, was partially responsible for this. They were pitching him at times every three three days uh, because he would sell that place place out. Um, basically meaningless games, and but on days that he would pitch, um, you know it was great box office. So he, I, I am certain that he threw many many more innings than than Seaver did. Yeah, he uh, definitely did. I looked that up before. Yeah, he, he definitely threw more innings. So unfortunately. Um, because he was such great box office, um, that use by Lasorda of Fernando continued. So Fernando made the All-Star game his first six years and performed brilliantly in those All-Star games. I think he had over two All-Star games. He struck out six or seven straight guys. Um, and um, and arguably his greatest season was 86. Um and 85 was a great year too. I mean, you could argue, you know, you could make an argument that 85 and 86, he pitched better than he did in 81. Um, but all those innings with that screwball really had an adverse effect on him. So he develops an arm injury relatively young. Um, and that was something he never fully recovered from. Now he went out and pitched a no hitter for the Dodgers in his last season with the team in 1990, but uh, the following spring training, the Dodgers unceremoniously uh, released him. And the bitter pill about that release was the fact they invited him to spring training and they had a, a three-game series in Mexico. And Fernando, of course, was the big draw. It was like Babe Ruth going down, down there, you know, the conquering hero. And of course, the game that Fernando pitched, he pitched well, standing room only. And uh, and two and a half weeks later, they release him. And uh, so from that point on, Fernando, um, it took him a while. It, it took him, honestly, another five years to reinvent himself and become an effective pitcher again. But when he did, uh, he was a really good pitcher for the San Diego Padres in 95 and 96 and helped a young Padres team in 96 um, win the division and make the playoffs. Um, he was a real leader on that team. And and in the book, I, I actually interviewed a number of those Padre players, you know, teammates of his, as well as Bruce Boshi, who uh, was in his first year as man manager of the Padres. I think it was 95. And um and Valenzuela really was a big help to Boshi uh, with that young team. And 
And of course, Bruce Boshi is headed to the Hall of Fame as a manager. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Right. He's the, the you know, probably the greatest, at least in the last 15 years, maybe the best manager as most, most, uh, most wins. Um, you know, so, so after Fernando's, uh, exit from professional baseball, all, you know, baseball, all baseball players eventually, uh, must retire. Uh, you know, he, he's, uh, he now works in, in broadcasting. So, so how did he get into that? Was it inevitable, especially for someone who, as you described in the book is, is very shy. Like how, how did that even come about? Well, you know, things didn't end great with the Dodgers after they released him. But it was Jaime Harin, uh, the legendary Hall of Fame Dodgers Spanish language broadcaster, and really a father figure to Fernando. Uh, he was the one that talked him into it. And, um, uh, and you know, he's, you know, Fernando's a really bright guy. I mean, he's, he's really bright when it comes to baseball. <laughs> and so how they handle it with him is they will feed him questions for him to comment on. And he's very good at it. Um, I don't speak Spanish, um, but everybody that, that I talk to that is Spanish, that's in the industry, um, they, they've unequivocally, they've, they told me he's really a terrific analyst. Um, you know, he, he's not outspoken or loquacious, uh, but he's very, very good at what he does. And, and I, and I, I think that's why he's been doing it for over 20 years now. Um, and certainly bringing him back into the Dodger family. Um, you know, I, I, I think that means a lot for the product as well. I think that's good, good for business. Probably looking at today in the year 2023, obviously so much has, has happened in baseball. I'm not going to ask you to comment on all, all the new rule changes and, and everything like that. Um, but just, you know, what do you see as Fernando's long run impact on baseball today? You know, for, especially, you know, for, for, you know, young people, young, young kids who might be, you know, go to a baseball game, what would you want them to, to know about Fernando Valenzuela the same way that you might tell them about Joe DiMaggio or Babe Ruth or, you know, or, or other greats? He, what he meant to Mexicans and Mexican, Mexican Americans was equal to what Jackie Robinson meant to African Americans. Um, and I'll take it a step further. Um, he inspired millions of Latinos, uh, not just Mexicans, uh, but Dominicans, uh, Venezuelans, um, players from Latin America, uh, and Latinos from all over the United States. Um, he, um, he reminded of, of the Mexican Americans I interviewed for this book. He reminded them of their older brother or their uncle, um, Fernando was not a physical specimen. Uh, he had this every man look about him. You know, he, he had kind of this, this funny looking haircut, um, boyish face. Um, he was not svelte. Um, he was pudgy. Um, and he had very, very thin ankles, you know, and, and, um, you know, so he, he kind of had, uh, a non-athletic body, but it was a body that so many people I interviewed could relate to with their, with their own family. 
and he was Mexican and, and he was Mexican. And so they looked at him and they said, you know what? If Fernando Valenzuela, this guy, if he can be the very, very best at what he does at his craft, well, then what's stopping me? What's stopping me? Not just, and I'm not just talking about baseball. Um, I'm talking about, you know, the people he inspired to become teachers and lawyers and doctors and professionals. Um, you know, Mexicans, especially in the United States, you know, they've they've been marginalized. You know, they work in the fields, they work on farms, um, you know, to put food on Americans' tables. And they're out there in extreme heat. And and it's a hard life. And I think Fernando inspired countless Mexicans to um to to go beyond that, you know, to to become more a part of society. And um and you know, and I and I also don't think it stops there. I I, I think he inspired um, players from all over the world to play in the major leagues. Uh, before Fernando, uh, the major leagues were dominated by American citizens. Uh, now, you know, players aren't just coming from Latin America, but they're coming from Asia. Um, they're coming from Australia. So I think um, his his impact on the game is as great as any player in the history of the game. Yeah, that's that's certainly. I I, I grew up in in Los Angeles, and Fernando Valenzuela is is iconic. Like you, there's there are murals of him. There are you you know if you go to Dodger games, like like you you know like we said at the outset, like you will see more Fernando Valenzuela jerseys than any other player on the Dodgers. Maybe you'll see more Clayton Kershaw jerseys just because you know he's reached. <laughs> people have had a lot of time a lot of time to buy them over the the course of the years, but yeah, I mean it's it's hard to compare uh you know obviously uh it's it's hard to make these predictions but my final question for you uh you know why not let's go for it who do you think is going to win the world series in 2023 the atlanta braves and yeah. and and i say that be, because um when the season started i was asked you know the same question during one of these interviews for the book and i said the braves because what what they've done is they have put together a super team that is basically locked up in contracts for the next nine to, to 10 years. <laughs> They're going to be great for a very, very, very long time. Um, I mean, they have just created this super team and uh, and they're laughably good. And what's crazy... Tell you what a crazy game baseball is. The Mets who sold off, you know, their best players basically. Well, they traded them off. They, you know, they um they actually beat the Braves in Atlanta last night, which to me is fascinating. This is why you should never bet on baseball. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's I I saw them. I and you know I saw I actually I saw it, the the Braves play the Mets about a week and a half ago, and the Braves destroyed them. Yeah. Um and you know, yeah, watching them, um, I think that they have eight players with higher OPSs than than any player on the Mets, maybe with the exception of Pete Alonso. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's a remarkable game, a remarkably weird sport. I don't think that there are there are very few sports like it. Maybe cricket, but you know, at least in America. Um, 
Well, Eric, thank you so much for being a guest on the, on the New Books Network. The, the book is Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania, and the Remaking of Los Angeles Dodgers. I highly recommend people go and check it out, whether you are a baseball fan or just interested in uh, you know, what, what Eric has had to say today. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you.